Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures. My name is Niels Kostrup-Larsen, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in managed futures brought to you by CME Group. Your guest host today is Chris Solas, Managing Director of Global Macro Hedge Fund Strategies at Cliffwater, and he's joined by some very interesting guests to discuss the current state of the crypto space. So without further ado, here is Chris. My name is Chris Solars. I'm going to be your guest host today. And today's show is focused on all things crypto. Now, to paraphrase Mark Twain, the rumors of the death of cryptocurrencies have been greatly exaggerated. Today, I have a panel of three great crypto enthusiasts here to share their expertise. I have Tim McCourt of the CME Group, Rory Niederhofer of RG Niederhofer Capital Management, and James Katulis of Typhon Capital Management. What we're going to talk about today is first a high-level introduction to crypto. We're going to address the pros and cons. We're also going to talk about the investability of cryptocurrencies, how you can access this market. We're going to talk about the 300-plus crypto hedge funds, including those based on CME-listed futures. And finally, we're going to talk about the inevitable institutionalization of crypto as an asset class. But before we get started, I'm going to have my panelists introduce themselves. Tim, hello. How are you doing? Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me here today. Can you please give us a, a little background and what you're doing here at the CME? Sure. So Tim McCourt, Global Head of Equity Index and Alternative Investment Products at CME Group, where my team is responsible for managing the business line associated with global equity index benchmarks, such as the S&P 500, NASDAQ, Dow Jones, and Russell 2000, as well as alternative investments, which here at CME that includes commodity indices, and recently, as of December 2017, Bitcoin futures. Great. Well, thank you, Tim. And Tim told me that he's a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. His very first concert in second grade was to see Bruce Springsteen. He loves the boss so much, he moved his family back out to New Jersey just recently. That's right. I grew up on Long Island. But my first concert, uh, my parents took me to see Bruce Springsteen over at the Meadowlands, our giant stadium. Uh, and, you know, now moving recently to New Jersey, I feel like I'll ever be conflicted answering the question of who do I prefer, Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel? Only time will tell. Time will tell. James, happy to have you on the podcast as well. Thanks for having me, Chris. Sure. Can you give us a little background on yourself? Sure. I'm the CEO of Typhon Capital Management. We're a deconstructed hedge fund with several future strategies in uh, metals, crypto, of course. Uh, we also run a, a digital assets fund. I'm a securities lawyer and also an advisor to Basis, a algorithmic stablecoin. Great. James went to undergrad in Florida, law school in Chicago, and now spends his time in New York City 
uh, running his business, and he still part plays. Part of my time in New York City. Part of your time, sorry. But the interesting thing is you still play competitive ice hockey even after two knee surgeries and you keep a full set of hockey gear in all three places in Miami, Chicago, and New York for, for easy access. you got to be ready when the puck drops. That's right. Well, good stuff. And last but not least, Roy Niederhofer. Roy, thanks for being here on the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Can you give us a little background on, on your firm? You started your firm in 1993. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what you do and what you're doing in crypto? Sure. Well, we're futures traders from the, from the very beginning. And our strategy is very short-term, ranging from uh, minutes to about five or ten days in all the major asset classes. And I guess what we've been known for is the fact that our funds are negatively correlated to stocks and bonds. So they're meant to be protective as well as absolute return vehicle. We've been watching crypto as a space both for trading and investing for a long time. And in 2017, we modified one of our existing funds to allow people to, instead of keeping uh, fiat like dollars or yen in a futures fund, to use crypto as the core holding and then monetize it by doing something on top of that, essentially using the crypto as collateral. Almost a crypto-denominated share class. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Maybe if uh, 10 years ago, we saw a few gold-denominated share classes, and now I think this is the very first crypto-denominated share class. I've right. Seen we're, we're, actually, we're actually still dollar-denominated, but the thought was that the fund would hold a core of crypto rather than a core of dollars. Yeah, synthetically. Well, very good. Can Thank we talk you. talk about Billy Joel? Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we certainly can. Um, I'm a Billy Joel guy. Well, good. Big picture here, I would love to start out and talk about cryptocurrency at the highest level. We have a lot of crypto enthusiasts here. Maybe we can start with, with you, Roy. Can you talk about your current view on crypto? Is crypto here to stay? I'm extremely bullish on cryptocurrency. I would say I'm agnostic more so on blockchain than crypto. I think crypto is the killer app for blockchain. The reason that I'm so bullish on crypto is that it is the first fixed supply asset that's ever existed in human history with all the characteristics of money, but without the vice of over-creation, which has happened 100% of the time in human history, in every type of government-issued currency, except in this case, we don't have that possibility. We know there will be a fixed supply of Bitcoin, a fixed supply of, of coins in general. Now, what makes it different is that for the first time, you can use that crypto and monetize it and do something else with it while keeping your exposure. In the same way that you can invest in yen and buy Japanese stocks, invest in China, get the currency exposure, and also invest in Chinese companies or Chinese bonds, you can do the same in crypto. And you can lend your crypto, you can, in our case, trade futures with it. And our thought that this combination of fixed supply and the ability to get a non-devaluing rate of return makes it a unique and brand new investment vehicle. And I think as people realize that the dollar has depreciated 99.95% the last 120 years in real terms and start to see that you can get the same return in crypto without that possibility, it's going to be very, very attractive for institutions and we're going to see massive appreciation from here. Thank you. Maybe we can stay at the very, very top, James. And can you help us just differentiate between the different styles of crypto? 
because Roy is talking about perhaps Bitcoin, but there's also the different protocols like Ethereum, and there's also different altcoins like the ICOs we see. I think those are perhaps the three big buckets. But could you just tell us for the listeners who are still new to crypto, what it means to invest in these different styles of, of coins? Sure. You, you have coins like Bitcoin that, that's a digital store of value. Ethereum is really designed around a concept of smart contracts where you can have algorithmic functions whose, whose networking power is paid for with you know, the currency surrounding that. And then you have tokens that look to mimic VC investments via you know, the ICO market, which is you know, probably the most regulatory dicey of, of, of the three. Exactly. Tim, can you tell us a little about how you got into crypto and what you're doing with, with crypto here at the CME? I know that just recently, at, I guess less than a year ago, you launched futures on Bitcoin. That's correct. So in December of 2017, CME Group launched Bitcoin futures, which are a US dollar financially settled futures contract. But our venture into crypto started before that. You know, in May of 2016, we announced our intentions to launch the Bitcoin reference rate with our partner crypto facility. And that went live in November of 2016. So a little bit more than a year prior to the launch of the future. And just for those of you who aren't aware, the Bitcoin reference rate is a once a day rate that is published where it's derived from Bitcoin dollar spot transactions between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m. London time from four constituent exchanges. Bitstamp, ItBit, Coinbase, and Kraken. And then in that one-hour observation window, it's partitioned into 12 equally weighted five-minute samples, where in each sample, we take the volume-weighted median price of the Bitcoin dollar spot transactions and then straight-line average them over that th those 12 samples. So what that does, and the kind of our first step was in response to customers' demand for a established pricing mechanism, a reference rate, as, as well as a real-time index, and then in December of 2017, our future boosters launched financially settles to that Bitcoin reference rate. So we've seen, you know, very strong growth in our Bitcoin future month over month. We're pleased with it. And then in this past May, we also expanded our pricing product or the index products to include Ether US dollar, where we also have a Ether US dollar reference rate and real time index. And that one is based on uh, spot transactions from Bitstamp and Kraken. So perhaps we can expect a bit uh, Ether futures in the in the near term future? Yeah, well, we don't really have plans right now for an Ether futures product. <laughs> Our focus right now is just on the pricing index. And just like the Bitcoin futures, any future product development with respect to futures contracts at CME will be deployed and designed in response to customer demand. Uh, so we're certainly listening to customers. Uh, but right now, Bitcoin futures is keeping us pretty busy. And in the launch, what were the challenges constructing a futures index on something that is virtual, something that doesn't exist, um, something that's digital, as opposed to a lot of the commodities, which are asset-backed, a lot of the equity indices, which have you know real assets backing them. Yeah, and then I think in terms of the future design and the contract specs, our job was made a little bit easier by the homework that went into creating the Bitcoin reference rate to start. Uh, that reference rate was designed in such that the methodology would be transparent, it would be observable, it would be discrete, it has an oversight committee, it has an index administrator, it has a calculation agent. So the fact that we designed that index, when we then effectively wrapped the futures around it a year later, there weren't so many product-specific challenges with that design because it is financially settled, it's worth, it has a multiplier of five Bitcoin. 
So in terms of how it functions in the system, it is no different than an S&P 500 or a Russell 2000 or a NASDAQ future. These are just the arithmetic representations or the computed value of an index, and we're just moving dollars against those value, which makes it significantly easier for it to plug and play in the mm. existing network, the existing ecosystem that we have with market participants and clearing members. So I think the challenge wasn't so much around the design. It was making sure that as we brought this product to market, that we implement all the proper risk controls and credit controls and clearing protocols to give people the confidence and and safety to transact in something as new as Bitcoin. And that's one of the reasons why we went with the financially settled is it made that a little bit easier for customers. And we've seen customers continue to adopt it over the last year. It seems one of the, the more safe ways to, for institutions to play crypto is through the, the Bitcoin futures, because one of the biggest risks to investing in crypto yourself is that you physically own it. You have risk for, for hacking, et cetera. So thank you and congratulations for that. And thank just you. can you give us some, some background on, on the trading volume and how it compares to some of the other mature contracts that are trading? Sure. So what's interesting to watch is we're doing about 3,500 contracts per day as of October, you know, as of yesterday through October month end. And that's grown steadily. You know, when we looked the first month, we're doing a little over a thousand contracts. So it's increased month over month. The most volume we had was back in April where we did, I think, about 11,300 Bitcoin in one day. uh, Sorry, Bitcoin futures in one day. And then in July and August, we were doing between five and six thousand Bitcoin futures per day. But to put that in perspective, since we have a five Bitcoin multiplier, we're talking about doing between 25 and 30,000 Bitcoin equivalent per day in our futures contract for the months of July and August. And that makes it a, one of the largest U.S.-based risk transfer platforms for Bitcoin. So that's something we're very proud of. And it's less than a year. Uh, I think, you know, putting aside the media hype or maybe the coverage that B- Bitcoin has gotten, uh, we're very pleased with a futures contract hitting that milestone Having more than 3,000 contracts of open interest, almost 1,800 accounts have traded the product since launch in December of 2017. And these are great milestones for a new futures contract to have less than one year and for a contract to put those milestones up on such a new underlying asset as Bitcoin is something we're very proud of. Great. So over these past two years, since I've been following crypto and crypto hedge funds, what's really interesting is if you overlaid a chart of, of crypto interest in over to the price of Bitcoin, you'd have an R squared of you know close to one. But interestingly, though, now that we're back to the price of 6,000 Bitcoin, after the peak of nearly 20,000, there seems to be much less interest in crypto as there was on, when we were running up past through 6,000. There's much less of an interest from the investment community. But Roy, can you talk a little I bit? I disagree with that. Yeah, thank you. Sure. So I, I think the interest is, is still overwhelming. I mean, and, and I, I don't necessarily think that the price of Bitcoin is 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 like you said the you know the the true true parameter of the interest. I think if you look at the VC world, raises are still happening. Like the brain drain, people are leaving traditional hedge funds, for example. You know to 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 go you know run companies like this. I mean my partners in, in Basis like they left like D Shaw, they left you know Google Analytics, um, you know start crypto and, and have been incredibly successful and. The amount of VC money going into the space is just accelerating. You know, the amount of institutional partners, Fidelity, Northern Trust, you know, getting in the space, all of that is accelerating. So, you know, I think it's important to keep the perspective that there's been, I believe it's seven, 70 percent or more drawdowns in Bitcoin you know, in the 10 years that, it, that it's uh, been around. It's, you know, it's incredibly volatile, you know, but to me, this looks like things are consolidating here. And as Roy said earlier, um, I mean, this thing is going much, much higher. 
And I, I think, as you alluded to earlier as well, once we have custody solutions in place, things like SOC 2 compliant custodians that would let SEC registered RIAs get involved and comply with the custody rule, I think that's going to be a big driver in cryptocurrency yeah. prices. Yeah. And I think another key factor when one looks at volumes and transactions is that as with, say, S&P futures trading, when there's a lot of volatility, you get a lot more transactions, you have a lot of people able to high frequency trade. So vo volume goes way up with volatility. I think if we look at October, you guys probably had a great month in your futures contract. I see a smile there. Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. the answer is certainly. But that doesn't mean that there are fewer people interested in the stock market today than there were when the volume was a quarter of what it was last year when it was the quietest month ever in the S&P. So I think we have to separate out those two factors. And I agree with you, James, that there's still the, the core interest. People are still every day coming out with great new products and every crypto and in blockchain. It's, it's everyone wants to talk about it as much as they did last year and, the, and much less than the year before. So I, I think transaction volume and uh, total trading volume is one measure, but we have to look deeper to really see whether it's just a volatility effect or is it a fundamental loss of interest. Well, can we talk about the bubble that happened? Because if the core interest is, has been consistent or increasing, certainly the speculative interest was very, very interested in, and fell off there. Can we talk about the bubble and, and what happened in the buildup and the sell-off? Yeah, and there's a great chart on the internet that basically <clears throat> shows the price of Bitcoin over time, and I, I wish there was video here so I could draw with my finger. But uh, you know, basically, there's been many exponential moves in Bitcoin, and then drawdowns as well, like we, we just alluded to. It's volatile, right? You know, th things have moved, but every time it has gone, you know, considerably higher. And 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 as Roy said, once people start to appreciate the store value component compared to the the massive devaluation of the dollar since the Fed was enacted in 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 1913, it, it's going higher again. So. You know, the difference just last time is people were actually paying attention on, on, on a broader scale, right? And um, I think that the one thing investors really better be cautious about is when they invest in a quote-unquote crypto hedge fund, that they're investing in something that's not just like long crypto, right? And, you know, I think a lot of people have gone out there and they've sold track records on the basis of them hodling or, or you know, to the non-crypto geeks holding Bitcoin, right? And th those numbers look fantastic. And then... You know, they, they saw 65 to 80 percent drawdowns, you know, this last year. You know, so for us, I mean, we take a risk managed approach to that. We were up only 440 percent in 2017 and we're you know down only 25 percent this year in, in the long bias fund. And we've been making money on the futures. So we love the futures. And I agree. October was a fantastic month with the volatility. I think there's also a, a, a bit of perspective that one needs to have if you think about in percent, the appreciation of Bitcoin so far probably has something like a billion percent, right? It's 10 to the ninth, I think it might be the number. And then, then it had, so it went up a billion percent and dropped 30, and people think it's over. Dropped 60, people think it's absolutely over. So we have to just remember what's happened here. And the fact that the S&P and NASDAQ were far more volatile than Bitcoin this month, I think actually has something to do with the futures contract. I think if we look back and uh, look at the history of speculative instruments. I remember writing an article with my brother in 87 that people were blaming speculators for the crash of 87. It was exactly the opposite. The crash would have been a lot worse were there not speculators to come in and buy futures on the lows, or even the Fed, as, one, as some people think. I, I like to tell the story of how we, we all know the, a great example of how speculators 
reduced volatility. It's actually in the Bible where Joseph in Egypt got a great tip about the grain market. And, you know, he made the same trade that the pork belly traders used to. There was a big surplus, so he bought it up and uh, kept it. And seven years later, he sold it back out again. So what did he do to the price? He increased the price when things were low priced and uh, reduced the price when there was a shortage. And I think that's what people will use the futures for as everything matures in the derivatives world and you can sell volatility. Things will even get more quiet and more safe for investors. As a general rule, when people say, well, Roy, what about custody? What about it's too volatile? I'm too afraid of it. I don't know anything about it. All of these things are reasons that the price of cryptos is as low as they are. Those create the opportunity. It's too volatile. Yes, it would be 10x. It's hard to custody. That's right. Or it would be 10 times more valuable. So every one of these reasons is absolutely true now. But we know that as speculators come in, it's going to get more liquid and that will make it more valuable. And for every one of the reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about today, it's important to realize that this represents the opportunity, in my view. Yeah, I think when you look to the futures market, uh, you know, we're talking about kind of the, the S&P and the NASDAQ and things like that. It's undeniable that when you look at the you know near 24 hour access of CME futures and liquidity pools that offered, yes, there are always going to be different customer personas or motivating factors for why people are trading. But it's not all speculative, right? You know, you have hedgers, you have speculators, you have people who are investing in long term views. Uh, so it's really when you get these type of personas together that it makes that risk transfer more efficient and it increases the velocity of the trading and it gives them multiple paths to express their views or to manage their risk. You know, to Roy's point, if someone was only beholden to a spot market, it could potentially exacerbate or cause different market structure reactions in terms of someone's wanting to either liquidate or put on new positions. So you really look at the interrelated aspect of the underlying market with the futures market, and they're highly symbiotic. That's something that we've also seen start to develop for Bitcoin futures as well. When we look at the personas of the customers or the segmentation, you know, we do have your quote unquote natural hedgers. Uh, we have miners in the contract. We have those firms that have accumulated open market positions through spot transactions. But then we also have people who are using futures because it's on a regulated exchange and they want to use it as an access point in lieu of the spot market. And then you have the opportunistic people who are looking to trade or deploy strategies around the price movements. And it's the confluence of these types of personas that lead to efficient discovery. So, you know, we're very proud of the fact that if we look at from June onwards, the Bitcoin futures has been about five contracts up a side under two ticks. So when you break it down in terms of your risk management needs for Bitcoin, the fact that you can come to CME and transact the equivalent of 25 Bitcoins for less than $50, that's an immensely powerful risk management tool. So this was interesting. You broke out the segmentation of the users of, of Bitcoin futures. The first one seems the most obvious to me. The miners are mining Bitcoin. They want to sell it to lock in their profit. So they probably would be a natural sell. You've got the people who want it as an access product who don't want to take the risk of any counterparty risk or, or hacking risk. They would probably be natural longs or maybe, maybe short, depending on, on their view. And then you have a lot of the prop trading firms that are opportunistically trading it, both long and short, depending on, on the, the price moves, right? That's correct. That yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, sometimes it's always hard to quantify or pinpoint the exact motivation. But I would say in general, that thesis would hold true. I think the one thing that we're also seeing, which is interesting, is when you look 
at some of these proprietary trading firms. They're also very active in the underlying digital market or the spot market. So we're also seeing some of them not necessarily always selling or always hedging, but they're also providing liquidity and they're looking to kind of move between both sides of the market as they trade around inventory. You also see some of the advent of things like loaning Bitcoin or trying to facilitate short selling, things like that. So I think it's not always necessarily long or short. I think people will uh, change their position or change the role they're playing in the market, even if they have a more natural de facto starting position. It is something that I would characterize as fluent, uh, depending on what's going on in the market, even for some of uh, the people who might be, as you refer to as natural sellers, they're not necessarily always sellers in the market or always buyers, etc. I think there's one more group of people that we need to think about, and just as a lot of ETFs and institutions use S&P futures as an access point to just buy and hold, we're going to see this futures contract as an entree to the space for institutions that if they do want to hedge their exposure to overprinting of the U.S. dollar, which I think is a possibility we all have to think about as we try to meet the $200 trillion of unfunded liabilities for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, institutions may think, hmm, well, I can get 3 or 5% in my Bitcoin holdings with no risk of that. How am I going to get access to that? Maybe I should put a couple of percent. And we're already seeing, we're seeing Harvard, Yale, Stanford, UNC, all investing now in blockchain, in crypto. So this is just the beginning, and I think the futures contract, as with the S&P futures and all other futures as well, represents for speculators and for long-term holders a great way to get in the, the market. Yeah, for sure. I think if we look back to last Friday on the October expiration of the Bitcoin future, I believe, I forget the exact number, it was about 20% of the open interest was also brought into expiration. So, you know, the, the people have been rolling the contracts prior to that to month to month. They typically have been doing it in an outright fashion, trading the front month versus the second month, not necessarily using the Globus listed spread for all their roll activity. But people have been rolling it. You are kind of seeing this, this long-term view. But I also think as people are getting more comfortable holding the contract into expiration and having that go into that Bitcoin reference rate or the BRR final fixing for the settlement at maturity, I think you're going to see people get more comfortable holding it as well. Uh, and that was something that we saw in October with uh, a lot of people or more people than usual bringing the contract to expiration. Well, this is the perfect segue into trading strategies here because, you know, in 15 years of evaluating hedge fund trading strategies, I, I found it very interesting. Probably about a year and a half ago, I started to see Bitcoin arbitrage funds come out or cryptocurrency arbitrage funds come out. And just to put it in perspective, for years, I've been talking about fixed income ARB and vol ARB and statistical arbitrage. And truly, when I understood what these funds were doing with cryptocurrency ARB, it was the first time I, I, I really thought this is a pure arbitrage. There's no investment risk. In fact, all of the other arbitrages should be called relative value because they've almost reinvented the strategy. Um, there's probably 200 exchanges around the, around the world, cryptocurrency exchanges. Many of these are really small sell-side brokerage firms, though. They have a lot of credit risk. But what's happening... People are actually buying low and selling high, simultaneously making markets between these exchanges. They've been doing it for many, many years, um, and I find this very interesting. When Roy talks about the buy and hold story, when he talks about that, that's really the beta of the market. And if we talk about five to 10 years, probably 
cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin will all be much more valuable. But that's a really simple story. That's the buy and hold. Today, we have alpha and alpha is ephemeral because as the more more market participants come in, the spreads you can make on these trades are, are quite small. James, can you tell us a little about, about this, about the alpha you're seeing today with, 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 with respect to crypto derivatives? Sure. So, so there's definitely alpha in, in the crypto arb trade. It's, it's one that we are not comfortable doing customer money in because like, you know, like, you Roy, uh, like Roy says, right, when there's a reason arbs exist, right? There's a reason Bitcoin's lower now, right? Custody, for example, you know, doing the cross exchange arb, you can't really effectively short on, on the U.S. platforms, which means you've got to go to the Asian platforms. I won't say exchanges because they're not regulated exchanges like CME. But, uh, you know, the Asian platforms, right, you've got a lot of counterparty risk there. I mean, like, look at all the concerns with, with Tether. I mean, you, you know, you can't really you can't really trust those. And I don't feel put it, I don't feel comfortable, you know, putting customer money there. You know, from a proprietary trading strategy, though, I mean, there's absolutely are opportunities. You know, so what we've done is, on the futures, and you know, we were live within about thirty minutes of the futures contracts going live. Um, is is use algorithms that were very effective in other volatile commodities, things like oil and, and, and gold, to trade cryptos and uh, trade crypto futures. And you know, we've we've been running about a two sharp ratio there um, on the futures, which has been fantastic. And then on 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 the long, you know, bias fund, we we allocate to the future strategy. Uh, we hedge with futures, um, but we, we do take long positions with, with digital assets. And we do that on U.S.-only exchanges. For, and, and what do you the, mean by a future strategy? Can you explain that in a little more detail? Yeah, so so structurally, we offer a, a, a registered CTA managed account strategy that uses crypto futures. So uh, it's it's fully quantitative. So, you know, I can't get into the methodology too much. But, you know, there's momentum components. There's mean reversion components. Um, it's it's short term in nature. Yeah, one interesting thing I've seen is crypto CTAs, trend followers that have emerged. There's just a few of them, and they're the the classic story of of a CTA or a trend follower is to be diversified across perhaps a hundred different futures contracts. And you're trading you're trading equities, you're trading currencies, you're trading bonds, you're trading uh, a little bit of everything. And through that diversification, you're able to capture the momentum premia. And it has worked over time. Um, what's interesting, though, whereas everyone has probably added crypto as the 101st or the Bitcoin futures as the 101st contract, a few have now come out in just selling that one contract. And amazingly, year to date, because it's only been live for you know less than a year, year to date, they're outperforming these diversified funds. It's a small time frame, but perhaps it speaks to the fact that the participants and the underlying you know fear and greed of the Bitcoin futures is is not institutional in nature and hasn't been overcrowded the way that a lot of the CTAs are historically competing with other CTAs and it's very, very crowded. I, I would definitely agree with that. We find when we apply our short-term strategies that have been trained on all the other markets to crypto, <clears throat> we do find a lot of alpha there. Of course, you also have much higher trading costs. On the trend-following side, it's very, very challenging, and it's particularly challenging on the machine learning side because you're dealing with markets that have had a billion percent appreciation, which you've chosen retrospectively to trade right. because they've had that appreciation. So I, I like to give this example of a, a trend follower who says, you know what, we're going to try our future strategy in equities. So they say, okay, well, we're going to test our strategy in the 100 largest equities, and wow, lo and behold, this thing works great, and you start trading equities, and the thing just fails. What did you do wrong? Well, you retrospectively chose the 100 largest stocks, which didn't all begin 
as the 100 largest stocks. So you have a huge upward trend bias. And of course, buy and hold works and trend following on the long side works. But even trend following bi-directionally will have that huge bias. Now, if you take Bitcoin, your, your machine learning strategy, whatever trend following strategy you use is going to work. You will never be able to sell the high in Bitcoin on a retrospective basis using the data. So you have to be very, very careful. And I think the, the shorter term areas, as, as I think you've probably determined as well, have a little bit less of that potential for bias. And I think perhaps this, we're going to see the same thing happen in Bitcoin that uh, in, in equities has occurred, where when buy the dip stops working, a lot of damage can occur and a lot of funds can lose money at the same time. I think a, f- a possibility that we all need to think about is what happens if Bitcoin just stays at 6,000 for a few years? I'm, I'm really bullish five to 10 years out, but that, it might get pretty boring for a while. What do you do with your investment in a fund that's relying on crypto appreciation? So I'm really happy to see James and others, there are a few, who are doing real trading strategies that are not necessarily just dependent on ARB existing, which of course exists for a reason, as you correctly point out. So I, uh, I think that's something we have to think about. And of course, the downside is something that's also possible. But I think, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the space, you're a believer and you're well aware of you're buying something that's up a billion percent. I think one thing that's interesting to add, and these are some of the conversations we've had with more participants, is, you know, when we're just kind of talking about here, we're talking about kind of like the advent of crypto only buy side firms and CTAs and really, I think, redefining what the quote unquote institutional investor is. Uh, when crypto, you can't always apply that similar logic or, or that legacy logic of identifying some of these shops. But one of the things that the futures does provide is when people are, are looking to deploy these familiar or tried and tested strategies from other parts of their portfolio or other parts of the ecosystem that they're familiar with, it works at CME because it's on Globex. It's a common technology protocol. People can deploy similar tactics because it's on a similar, it's on the same platform. When you look at some of the underlying digital space or some of the spot platforms that are out there, there is institutional accounts who are trading. But I think the question is, is it institutional flow? Is it institutionalized in the same way that you're finding in the future space? Uh, it's still a little bit elementary in the way orders are sent. And, you know, I think we're waiting for maybe the advent of more complex orders or more complex algos being deployed some of the spot markets of the digital platforms. But on the future side, I think that is one of the attractive things is that people can deploy those strategies that worked in other words that have been tried and tested. And now they're just applying it to another future at CME, as opposed to going through the machinations of trying to connect for the first time in some of these platforms or work through the trials and tribulations as the digital spot transaction platforms and ecosystem is coming online to more complex order types. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.